If you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Genesis chapter 29. We're continuing our study this, uh, this fall through really the life of Jacob in, uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, there's some Bibles under the chairs. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one and open it uh, up to Genesis 29. Let me um, uh, just make a, uh, a couple announcements. Uh, uh, first of all, um, the next two Sundays, we're going to be having our uh, Christ Church 101 uh, class. It uh, basically goes through the, the, the beliefs and vision of uh, our church. It's really a membership class, which uh, many of you might, maybe you've never been a member of a church, and, you know, What's the point of membership? Why, why become a member? Um, let me just say that the God that we meet in the Bible is a God who uh, makes promises to us. Uh, that his relationship to us is built on promises. And one of the things that will happen is we become like God as, we, as our community becomes a, a church that looks like what God is like, has his character. Then we begin to make promises to each other and to say, you know, this is my church. I, I'm a part of it. You can depend on me. I'm going to be here for you. Uh, I'm going to serve God here. And, and I'll tell you, especially to a young church like ours, uh, when people do that and they say, you know, I know what this church believes. I, I know what it's about and I want to be a part of it. You can count me in. It, it really brings health, strength, stability uh, to a body like this. So let me encourage you, if you're not a member, if you've been, if you're been coming uh, to Christchurch, uh, come, uh, come to the class. Uh, the next two Sundays at 5 o'clock, we, uh, we'll have some uh, dinner here. There's uh, child care provided. And um, it's about an hour and a half each class. So come and be a part of that. Second, um, uh, also, if you're not a part of a home group, uh, home groups are a really important part of the life of our church. I mean, it's really crucial if we're going to uh, be a church and be a community like the community that the, the Bible shows us is we're going to see each other at times besides Sunday morning here. And I know some of you, you know, you might be coming here and say, you know, I don't know a lot of people in this room. I wish I had deeper relationships with them, connections with them. Home groups is really a great place to do it. And I'll tell you one thing that's strange about home groups. A lot of the home groups they come together, and it's a group of people that oftentimes would not be spending an evening together every week or every other week for any other reason except for that they love Jesus. And, and what the Holy Spirit does, this is something the Holy Spirit does, it brings different kinds of people together to love each other, to eat together, to study God's Word together, to learn from each other. And so uh, let me just encourage you, uh, come uh, be a part of home groups. Uh, that's, you know, besides worshiping Sunday mornings, this is one of the, the main you know, kind of ministries or uh, things that happens in our church. And if, if you want uh, to be directed towards one that's a good night for you, a good location for you, come and talk to me. I'd love to, to connect you with someone. So uh, that's it um, uh, for announcements. Uh, we're looking at, at, at uh, Genesis chapter 29. And um, this is God's word to you uh, because you are the bride of Christ. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob uh, said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said, said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. 
He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for uh, the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his uh, mother's brother, and uh, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel, for your younger daughter, Rachel. And uh, Laban said, it is better that I give you to her than, uh, than that I should give her uh, to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my, my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you uh, the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed uh, her week. Then Laban, gave, uh, uh, then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female a servant Bilhah uh, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name is called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that your word, your authoritative word that governs our church, our lives, that pierces our hearts, comes to us in stories a story about a family, a story with so many things that even living in a modern world so far removed from the culture of, of this story, so many things that relate to our life. 
We ask that your Holy Spirit would expose our hearts and that you would teach us of your grace, that you draw us to yourself in your grace. And would you actually use your word to draw us close to you, to soften our hearts and to to build our faith. Give us ears to hear now as we uh, submit ourselves to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this morning we're talking about, I I think one of the biggest questions kind of in our culture, uh, uh, the question of what makes your life fulfilling? What, uh, that's a big question for a lot of people in our culture. I, I want to have a fulfilling life. You know, uh, what is the thing that uh, I know because I have this in my life, my life has meaning, that I, I have uh, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. What is that thing? And, uh, you know, what's interesting, what, what the Bible tells us is that the way God made us, God made us fundamentally as worshiping beings. We were made for worship. No matter who you are, you know, whether you're an a Buddhist or an, a Christian or an atheist, you were made for worship. And so whatever you put at the center of your life and you say this is the thing that gives me a sense of meaning is really something that, that you worship. It's something that you obey, you know, that um, I, I'll, I'll sacrifice for this thing. I will, um, I, I will obey this thing, make whatever demands it makes on my life, I will, I will obey it. And, uh, and, you know, all of our hopes are kind of wrapped up into these things. Uh, whatever we put at the center of our life. And so therefore, the, the Bible says that since we're worshiping ge- beings, we're going to find something to worship. There's no option to not worship. And so we're either going to worship the one true God, the God who made us and uh, who uh, we were made to worship, the one who's only, only deserving of our worship, or we're going to find something in his creation, something that he's made, and give our lives to that, put our hope, fix our hearts upon that. And... Um, and what the Bible calls this worship of the creation instead of the creator is idolatry. And, you know, in, in, in the uh, kind of in the Old Testament times, the, uh, idolatry often looked like some kind of statue that had a name of a god. But all, all these statues always represented something like fertility or rain or, or uh, you know, having babies or something like that. Something that, that, that the people in that culture valued deeply. And so in our culture, there's all kinds of things that we can make the center of our life, you know, that wealth or success or a person or the arts or music or uh, recreation. Any of these things can be things that we look to. Uh, to give us deepest fulfillment. And uh, John Calvin has kind of famously said that it's so, we are so prone to find something to worship, something to serve, something to give our lives to, that our hearts are actually like idol factories. We'll, uh, we'll take anything and make it into an idol, make it into a god, make it into something we worship. And actually, uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, he says it this way, that when people turn away from God, they don't believe in nothing. They, uh, they believe in anything. When we turn away from God, we don't believe in nothing. We will believe in anything. There's, we'll find anything else to give our lives to and to serve. And the tragic thing about that is whenever we find something else besides God himself to be the center of our lives, to be uh, our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate hope, our ultimate satisfaction, it will always fail us. Because we're asking it to, you know, everything that God made is good, but when we ask something to do something it wasn't made for, it's going to fail us. And uh, what we have in this story is um, we're looking at Jacob. And Jacob has become infatuated. He's, he's on this journey uh, from his homeland to visit kind of his relatives, and he meets Rachel. And he becomes obsessively infatuated with her. 
that he will do anything to have her. She, I must have this relationship. I must have this woman. I, I, I must be married to her. That he'll do anything for it. And, and actually, it, it, we see in the story, it leads to all kinds of disillusionment and dysfunction in his family because he is so uh, unflinchingly devoted to her. And uh, you can actually see this just in the first couple verses, kind of cryptically in this, in this passage, uh, where it begins by saying, And then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. If you've read the, the book of Genesis, you know that whenever someone is in the east, they're in danger. They're in trouble, right? So uh, when Adam and, and Cain are judged by God, they're sent eastward. Uh, eastward away from God's presence. You know, the, uh, the people who built the Tower of Babel, who were prideful and wanted to reach up into heaven, uh, they were from the east. And a lot, when he wanted to get rich and move away from Abraham, he moved to the east. And so when you're in the east, you're in danger. But then it goes on, it says, and he looked and he saw a well. And in Genesis in the Bible, wells are where Love happens where romance, you know, where people meet their wives. That's where uh, uh, Rebecca was found for Isaac. That's where Moses uh, met his wife Zipporah. Um, and so here, uh, what's the setting is for a romantic meeting, a, a meeting of love that is going to um, be unfulfilling and unsatisfying. So what I want to do is we look at this passage and look at uh, Jacob's experiences. He's putting his hopes in this woman and becomes disillusioned, becomes unsatisfied, where uh, it fails him. We can learn about idolatry and the things that we look for for fulfillment in our lives. And what I want to do is I just want to look at basically three questions. First of all, what do idols promise us? When we put something in the center of our life, it, it promises to do things for us. What kind of promises are we looking for for things that we put at the center of our lives as our ultimate hope? So what do idols promise us? Second, what do idols demand of us. They demand, uh, uh, you know, they don't just give us things for free. They enslave us. So what are the demands that idols make of us? And lastly, where can we find freedom from idols? Where can we find freedom from idolatry? And, um, you know, I should say that throughout the sermon, I, uh, uh, Tim Keller has a book called uh, Counterfeit Gods that, by the way, if you're not a reader and you're looking for a book, you know, you'd like something short that's Gets to the point. This is a good book. It's called Counterfeit Gods. It's a reflection on uh, idolatry. And I'm going to be drawing on a number of thoughts that he makes in that book throughout this, uh, throughout this sermon, but also uh, a really good resource if, if, if you want to uh, read some more and you want a, a really accessible book uh, into this topic. So the question of whoa, getting some kind of noises uh, from wind. So you, we can use that for dramatic effects. Hopefully it comes at the right point, okay? So, uh, so three questions we're looking at. Uh, what, first of all, what do idols promise us? When we put something at the center of our lives, our greatest hope, what, what are we looking for from it? And I think the first thing that they promise us is transcendence, an experience of transcendence. That's what we're looking for from things that we put at the center of our lives. And, um, and transcendence is... We're looking for an experience that's kind of otherworldly, something that takes us out of the day-to-day -day mundane uh, experience and kind of toil of life. I want something that feels otherworldly, uh, um, you know, a new experience. And uh, we're, what can give us that? And, uh, you know, we're looking at the life of Jacob. Jacob, uh, uh, we know in the, in the past few uh, chapters, has really been alienated from his family. Uh, uh, Jacob has... Uh, 
tricked his brother into uh, giving him his birthright and then uh, tricked his father into uh, giving him uh, the firstborn blessing of his brother. So his brother hates him. And so he's, uh, and brother wants to kill him. So he's running away from his brother. And uh, now he's on a journey, a several hundred mile journey. He's gone from his homelands, uh, in, in kind of in the promised land, to some of his uh, more distant relatives, uh, his cousins basically, uh, to find a wife. And so he's been on this several hundred mile journey by himself. He's never going to see his mother again. He's tricked his father. His, his life has an emptiness to him, and he has nothing. He's broke. You know, when, uh, when his father uh, got his, uh, his wife, Rebecca, he was rich, and he had all kinds of money to offer to get Rebecca to be his wife. He has nothing to, to try to find a wife. And so um, he's on this journey, and he comes uh, to Haran, which is where his relatives le- live, and he meets Rachel, who's a shepherdess, and he says, oh, you're my relative. Hey, I'm here. I'm coming to visit you. She runs home, and she tells the family, hey, uh, Jacob's here. Uh, let's bring him in. They bring him in. He stays a month with them, and apparently he starts working for Rachel's dad, Laban, and he's been working for about a month. And then it says this in verse 15, and Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And right after this, in, verse, in the next verse, uh, Moses, who wrote uh, the book of Genesis, he um, adds a little bit of information, a little commentary to the scene. And one of the things that's important to know, in ancient literature, it was not common for uh, an author to give physical descriptions of a person. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you'll find that we know nothing about what Jesus actually looked like. You know, was he short? Was he fat? Was he tall? Was he bony? Did he have a big nose? We don't know anything about what Jesus looked like because ancient writers didn't put physical descriptions in unless that was an important detail in the story. And uh, what happens here is, but this is what Moses adds in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. And uh, the specific detail is that Rachel was gorgeous. You know, it says in form, you know, she, uh, she, had, this, she had a great body and, and in appearance. Her face was beautiful. And uh, Jacob, you know, Jacob's been living in their house for a year uh, or for a month. And Jacob has become enchanted with Rachel. His life, he's, he's developed this obsessiveness about Rachel is so beautiful. And, and the thing about beauty, what beauty offers us is an experience of transcendence. There's an experience of otherworldliness that it brings us out of the mundane. And, 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 it, and it says, you know, he's going he's gonna to serve Laban for seven years in order to get, to get uh, Rachel. And he's, he says, fine, I'll, I'll work, I'll serve, I'll go through, you know, the toil. But if I can have this experience of beauty, of encountering beauty, it will take me into another, you will make my life. And that's the experience that he's having uh, of Rachel is he wants transcendence from her. And... Um, I think this is one of the things that we look for. When we put something at the center of our life, whether it's you know, success, whether it's the arts, whether it's music, whether it's recreation, 
We're hoping that, you know, I live this kind of toil and this, this kind of drudgery of everyday life, and what can give me an escape from it? What can give me a sense where um, I, I've kind of uh, floated above uh, the toil of everyday life? And what idols do is they promise us that escape, that sense of transcendence. That's what he's looking for here is she's just captured you. She's enchanted him. Um, that she could actually give fulfillment and meaning to my life. But I think related to that is that uh, idols don't only give a sense of transcendence, but they also promise us pleasure. And, um, and Jacob, you know, he agrees. He says, okay, I, I want you to... I want your daughter, uh, or, um, uh, Jacob uh, agrees to serve Laban seven years for his daughter. And, uh, and it says in verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him a few days because of the love he had for her. You see what, you know, he's working seven, seven years. And all he's doing, you know, what he's working in the field and all day, he's just dreaming about the day when finally I can have her, finally um, uh, we'll be married and he's dreaming, and over seven years, that infatuation is just building and growing. And he's imagining the time when we'll be, finally be married. He's fantasizing about this. Finally, when we're married, my life will be complete. I'll feel uh, full when we're together, when I finally have Rachel. And um, it grows so much that um, um, finally, when the seven years are over, <laughs> look at what the desires that have grown inside of, of Jacob, what he says to Laban. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her. <laughs> Sorry if that sounds gross, but that's essentially, I mean, you imagine someone going to uh, a father and saying that, how explicit, how inappropriate that is to say, this is actually what I've been thinking about for the last seven years. Is This is what I really want. It's not that I want her, I want sex, I want pleasure, the, phys the physical comfort of it. And um, his desire for pleasure has become inordinate. It is, it, it, it's inappropriate. And, uh, and actually, you know, what the Bible tells us is that pleasures, desires are good things. Uh, you know, 1 Timothy 4.4 4, so says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Pleasures are good when they're kept in their place, received with thanksgiving, when they're kept as a second, they're not the primary thing, they're not the thing that, uh, you know, takes control of our whole life. They're a secondary desire. And, um, and, but for Jacob, this has become the obsession of his life that he would say something so inappropriate to her, to her father. And, um, and this is what Dan Allender says. Pleasure was never intended to fill our deepest desires and needs. Pleasure was never intended to fill our deepest desires and needs, but to point us toward the one who can. Pleasures were never intended to be an end in and of themselves. They were supposed to point beyond themselves so that they would lead us and to see the goodness of God and that we would find our deepest fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction in God himself. And, um, and so what Keller says about Jacob is that what he's looking for, for from Rachel is not just a wife. He's looking for a savior. She can save me. She can give me transcendence. She can give me comfort and pleasure. She can give me ultimacy. She has become functionally the role of a savior in his life. And uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, yeah, I printed for you on, on page three of your bulletin. Um, um, this quote from C.S. Lewis where he talks about the power of, of what we're looking for in certain things into idols. He says, most people, if they've really look, uh, learned to look into their own hearts, 
would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give you, uh, that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. You see the promise of transcendence and comfort. These things offer you ultimacy, but they can't give it to you. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or uh, learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in the, in the first moment of longing, which just faded away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Idols make huge promises to us, and they always fail. The thing we were grasping at, the transcendence, the comfort, the pleasure, the fulfillment, they don't give it. But the tragic side is that they don't just make big promises. Idols, when we put something at the center of our life, like a person instead of God, not only uh, do they fail to meet their promises, but they also make huge demands on us. So that's the second question we're going to look at is, what do idols demand of us? And I think that we see in this passage that uh, idols both demand obedience and they demand trust. They want us to give our, our obedience and trust um, to them. And uh, first you see that they demand obedience. Um, um, and and you, you can see this here with Jacob and his desire to marry Rachel. Because look at verse, verse, 18, uh, verse 18. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. Now, this is amazing that uh, this is about four times what a normal bride price, you know, you, you have to give a bride price if you want to marry someone's daughter uh, in, the, in the ancient Near East. This is four times what, what a normal bride price would be. So um, he's kind of lost all sense of, you know, discretion of, of what's, a, what's, you know, being wise and prudent in, in his dealings. He's like, whatever you want, I just want her. Um, I'll do whatever you demand of me. There's this sense uh, of obedience. And actually, it's interesting. Earlier in, in Genesis, this same word for serve, it says that uh, Jacob is God's, you know, the chosen son. And that uh, his brother Esau is going to serve him. And that he's the one who's supposed to be served. And he says, I don't care. I don't care about this promise. I'll become the servant. I'll give my life. I will sacrifice my life. Um, and what idols do is they make demands on us that they enslave us, that we cannot say no to them. Because if something is the ultimate fulfillment of our life, this is the thing that will give me meaning, this will give me transcendence and, and comfort, how are we going to say no when it makes demands on us, when it asks us, uh, asks us to do things? And, um, and so we begin to act recklessly. And I think the reason for that is the second thing that they demand under us, uh, de idols demand from us, is trust. They, want, they expect us to trust them. And um, here Jacob commits to serve for seven years for Rachel. And this is how Laban responds. Look at how, so he says, listen, I'll, seven years I'll, I'll work for your daughter Rachel. And then Laban says this, verse 19, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. What kind of answer is that? I'll work seven years for your daughter. Well, it would be good if you married her. Uh, he never says yes. <laughs> he never agrees to the deal. <laughs> 
But Jacob hears what he wants to hear. He is so set that Rachel is the meaning of my life, that I want to hear yes so bad. Even though there wasn't a yes, he heard yes. And he's giving, uh, he's giving his trust to him. Jacob is overly trusting. And I think that these two things of obedience and trust are kind of a good test of how do I identify if something's an idol in my life? How do, how do I identify that? So that, uh, you know, I've had people ask me that. You know, I have something that is something I'm really passionate about, that I care about. How do I know whether this is an, becoming an idol or I'm just in, enjoying God's blessing? And I think one of the ways to look is where is your obedience? Do you obey it above obeying God's word? Or, or, you know, if people, if people are giving you counsel, you know, Christians around you are giving you counsel about how to live your life and, and how much you're involved in this thing, do you, do you listen to the counsel? Or do you obey the thing, that whatever's the center of your life, whatever you want? You know, if it's, a, a, you know, if recreation is the center of our life. Is your primary community of people where you're finding a sense of family, is that among God's people? Uh, in the church, in, in the people whose, whose lives are centered on Jesus, or are you finding your, com- your main community in, uh, in your recreational center? They're my family. Now, of course, God wants you to be in that community. God wants to use you in that community. But um, if you're going to prefer one community, which one is it? You know, or, or money, if money is the center of our life, uh, are we generous with our money? Uh, do, do, do we give our money, you know, God calls us to give our money to the work of his kingdom and the work of the church. Do we give our money to that? Or, or do we ultimately say, no, I, 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 other priorities come first. I need to obey the demands that money's making on me. And I, I know, you know, for, for some of you, there, you're in a similar situation to Jacob of a longing to be married, a longing for a spouse, a longing for that union. And you say, you know, you say, I feel so much sorrow and grief over not having a spouse. You know, is it wrong for me to have that kind of sorrow? And let me say, first of all, no. I mean, life in this world is, is, uh, is filled with all kinds of sorrows and grief, and we're allowed to feel sorrow over them. Feeling sorrow does not mean that you're making something into an idol. But if it comes to a point where I'm going to say, well, you know what? I'm going to marry someone who's not a Christian, who has you know, doesn't love God, doesn't love Jesus, which the Bible forbids us to do, then at that point, your obedience is, is towards, I want a spouse. That has become the center of my life. That is the thing that will give me fulfillment. And so that's where uh, we're giving our obedience is the test that something has be- become not just a good thing, but an ultimate thing. It has taken God's place in being the ultimate thing. And what's so tragic about idolatry is that we long for what it'll give to us, is that it always fails us. It always fails us. This is exactly what happens with Jacob. You know, uh, you see verse 20, uh, uh, Jacob says, all right, I, I've done the work. Um, I, I want to marry Rachel. Now's the time. Wow, this is, uh, is this the dramatic part? Is it you feeling that? Okay, I don't think so. Wrong time. Okay, um, so uh, Jacob wants to marry Rachel. And this is what happens, verse 22. So Laban gathered together all the people uh, of the place and made a feast. So it's the wedding feast. They're going to have a wedding. They're going to get married. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So what would have happened is Leah would have been um, uh, veiled all day long. And uh, so there, he would have never, you know, before the wedding, and it's really when they go into the tent together, when the unveiling happens, but it would have been nighttime, and it would have been dark. And so here, uh, Jacob thinks he's got Rachel, and he's got Leah. 
And uh, there's this great line in verse 25 when he wakes up in the morning. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. This is the experience of idolatry. All that he'd been hoping for, he'd been dreaming about what, what would happen for seven years. And in the morning, it's Leah. And uh, Derek Kidner is one of my favorite commentators on Genesis. He says, these words, behold, it was Leah, are the very embodiment of anticlimax. And uh, this moment is a miniature of man's disillusion, his ex uh, experience from Eden onwards. All of our experiences ever since we left the Garden of Eden, God's presence and enjoying him, everything that we thought would fulfill our lives, at the end of it, you know, not to diss Leah, poor Leah, but it's always, as, as Keller says, in the morning it's always Leah. In the morning it's always anticlimax. It's always not what we thought it would, it was always not what we dreamed it would be. And, uh, you know, by the way, you know, I should just make a few comments on this verse that um, you see how fitting this is for Jacob. Um, uh, you know, verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And if you know the story of Jacob, that word deceived is a loaded word because this scene is basically what Jacob did where he dressed up like his older brother Esau and pretended to be Esau and went in and got the blessing from, uh, his, uh, from his father Isaac. He was the deceiver. Now Laban has come around and deceived him. And, uh, and apparently Laban had heard about what happened back uh, with Jacob and his family because look, at, um, uh, you can hear kind of the accusation in verse 26 when Laban says... It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. He says, this is, this is what you deserve, Jacob. This is exactly what you did. Uh, you were trying to reverse the order back in your homeland, and now it's come back upon you. And um, these are, what are the things in our lives that we put at the center? If I had that, my life would be loaded with meaning. It would feel alive. It would feel transcendent. It would feel comfort and pleasure. The truth is that they always leave us uh, empty and longing and unsatisfied, unfulfilled, disillusioned. Um, and so the question is, With all of these idols in our lives, it is the habit of our heart, it's the, the instinct of our heart to take anything and turn it into an idol. How can we let go of them? Or how can they let go of us, maybe is a better question. If we're enslaved to them, if we're, uh, we have to obey them, we have to do what they demand of us, uh, how, are they, how are we set free? And this is the third question we're going to look at. Where do we find freedom from idols? And I think in this passage, if uh, Jacob is a picture of what, what it looks like to be disenchanted uh, by the, the idol of love, then Leah, the rejected one, is a picture of someone who's been freed from disenchantment. Now look at this. This is an amazing uh, story that we see in here. Um, and I want you to just feel Leah's situation in the story. Feel what she's put through, the abuse that she has put through. The first thing we learn about Leah comes in verse 17 where it says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And I think, you know, what does that mean, her eyes were weak? You know, there's, uh, a lot of people aren't really sure. Commentators say, uh, we're not sure what that means exactly. Well, what it probably is, is, is that in the ancient Near East, the eyes 
were prized as the most, you know, with the sparkle and the fire. When the eyes have that, that was the, the prime center of beauty. And she didn't have that, and Rachel did. And so uh, Leah, even though she's the older daughter, has kind of grown up under the shadow of Rachel, who's the loved one. And, you know, everyone comes and say, oh, isn't Rachel so lovely? And she's so beautiful. You know, what, what, hap- what happened with Leah? Why, you know, what happened there? What's wrong? And she's always getting, uh, getting dissed. And so, so much so that her father is actually anxious about the fact, am I even going to be able to find a husband for this gal? So he has to come up with this scheme. And, and you put yourself in Leah's shoes. This, Jacob is infatuated with Rachel, works seven years for her, and the father says, okay, listen, get over here, Leah. I'm going to stick you in the tent uh, at the last minute, and we're going to swap places. And, you know, is she feeling wanted, loved, <laughs> appreciated, either by her father or by Jacob? But you can imagine that she's probably thinking, well, okay, I know this is a setup. I know it, uh, Jacob doesn't know he's marrying me, and I'm going to be married to him, but maybe, maybe he'll learn to like me. You know, maybe, maybe things will work out, and, and now he's got me, he's stuck with me. But it turns out that you see in verse 27, Laban says to Jacob, all right, complete the week of the one. That's the, the wedding week. They, they had a whole week-long feast. He says, Can finish the feast with, uh, with uh, Leah. When Jacob says, you know, I, I want Rachel, I don't want Leah. And we will give, uh, give you the other in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed this week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So not only is Leah swapped in his second best, deceived, a week later, Jacob marries Rachel. And now she's in this marriage, which, by the way, if you have any questions about polygamy in the Bible, polygamy in the Bible is never depicted as a happy situation. And here's another example. It's never a happy situation. The Bible always sees it as a bad thing. And here it is again, and poor Leah has just, she's been married a week, and her husband gets married to someone else, her sister that everyone loves, and it says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And you can just feel the pain, the abuse, the unfulfilling life that Leah has the heartbreak, you know, talk about a low self-esteem. But something fascinating happens in this story. In verse 31, this great line, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. This is always the beginning of a life changing. When the Lord sees the heartbreak, sees the, the, the uh, disillusioned life, and, you know, Jacob was repelled uh, by uh, Leah's weakness, but the Lord was attracted by it. You see how he's attracted to her, sees her in a weakness, and he's drawn to her. That's what the Lord is like, is he's drawn to her. And it says this, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah, now listen to this carefully. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me. She's like, I'm going to give my husband babies. Maybe he'll love me. Maybe he'll, he'll turn towards me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. You see, Leah is just like Jacob. She says, if I have this husband, if I have this husband who will love me, who will attach to me, who will devote himself to me, and uh, think that I'm wonderful and, th- you know, relationally connected with me, then I'll find fulfillment in my life. And she's having all these babies, and, um, and she's 
but all the while, the Lord is drawing near to her. Because as she has these babies, each time she's saying, look, the Lord, look what the Lord's done. He gave me a baby. Now maybe my husband will love me. The Lord gave me a baby. Maybe the Lord will love me. He's given me a baby. Maybe the, Lord, uh, may, the Lord's given me a baby. Maybe my husband will love me. She keeps saying that. But what's happening is the Lord is blessing her. And what the Lord is, is he's not, he hears her. He doesn't look past her. He doesn't hate her. He despises her. The Lord is the husband that she's looking for. He is the husband. He's the father who's not, who's not rejecting her, who's not looking past her, who does not despise her. And so finally, as the Lord is answering her and responding to her, look, a change happens with the fourth son. And this is what it says. Verse uh, 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. The transformation happened. She said, listen, Jacob can't give me what I'm looking for. The Lord is the true husband who won't look past me. He's the one who can meet the longing that I'm longing for. And so she turns to him and she stops having baby. The lesson is learned. And who's the baby she has? Who's that fourth baby? It's Judah. And if you read through the, uh, the rest of Genesis, we know in the end of Genesis that when Jacob blesses uh, his sons, his blessing on J J Judah says that it is through Judah that the Messiah is going to come. Jesus, the true husband. Who's going to be like Leah? He's going to be the rejected one. And he's going to be rejected so that we can be embraced. And he's the true husband who draws us and draws the bride, the bride, the church, and he dies for them and sacrifices for them and says, I will never leave you. Behold, I'm with you always. And, uh, and this is what Leah finds out, is that the true fulfillment is in the Lord alone. And so where do we find freedom from idols? It is when we taste the grace of God, that he is not repelled by our weakness, he's not re repelled by our, uh, you know, our spiritual deformity, he's drawn to it. And he rescues us. And he is the only one who can be our savior. And so as uh, Augustine fa said famously, our hearts are restless. They are unfulfilled. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in God alone. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your persistence with Leah. Heartbroken. Abused. And yet you saw that she was hated and you persistently blessed her and drew her to yourself. Would those words that she said, this time I will praise the Lord, would that be true for us as well? That you would free us from the idols in our lives, the things that we put at the center, and that we would find your love to be the only thing that can satisfy and fulfill us, that can give us true comfort, transcendence, salvation. So we ask that your spirit would apply these words to each one of our lives and the idols that each one of us chase after. We ask this in Jesus' name.